0: Well good morning. This morning we are finishing up our series Mind Your Own Busyness. So this is part three. So this is the third and final part of the series. I read a story on the internet this week. Um, It was, they said it 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 was from a William Powers book. I don't even know who William Powers is and I didn't read his book. But the story that was told was this. There was this guy and he was talking to this woman. I believe the woman recently moved to the United States. She was a non-native English speaker. So she was here in the U.S. for I don't know how long. For a little, She was new to the United States. Um, and whenever he would talk to her and ask her how things were going, she would say, like when he said, you know, how how things been, she would say, busy, very busy. Um, and then he would go back a little bit later and ask her again, and hey, you know, how, how have things been for you? And she would say, busy, very busy. Um, and then as she kept doing it, um, he, he wondered about it. And I think the way the story was written it didn't seem like she meant it. Like she said it like in an upbeat way, like busy, very busy, rather than like all stressed out. right? so he's speaking to her um, so, and <clears throat> so finally, he said like, I, why do you keep saying, like every time I say how are you doing, you always say busy, very busy. And she essentially said, I thought that's what you do here. Like I thought in America, when someone says how are you doing, the polite response is busy, very busy. Like, that's what everybody does. You know how you do that when you learn other languages sometimes where they'll say, they say, ¿cómo está usted? And you say, muy bien, ¿y tú? Right? She thought it was, someone says, how are you doing? And you say back, busy, very busy. Like, that's what she was picking up on. Well, that says a lot about our country, doesn't it? At least it says a lot about the portion of our country that she was in wherever she was. I don't know where she was. Apparently, we are people who, how we are doing is busy, very busy. So um, I wanted to review the four points that we've learned so far in this series before we move on to the new information today. So um, we started the series two weeks ago, so I'm going back to the very first week. Let me review. Point number one of this series was God doesn't require us to accomplish all that we could possibly accomplish. That's where we began. Remember that? God does not require us to accomplish all that we possibly could accomplish. We spoke about margin in our lives. We specifically looked at the Sabbath command in the Old Testament, right? In Exodus 20, there's the Ten Commandments, and the fourth one was the Sabbath, which is a command not to actually accomplish all that you possibly could accomplish. The second point of this series was busyness can distract you from who really matters, And that was kind of the main point of the first sermon. So we're still in the first sermon at this point. Busyness can distract you from who really matters. For that, we looked at the Mary and Martha story, and we saw that in Luke chapter 10, Martha's many tasks distracted her from Jesus. Then we moved on to the second sermon in this series, which would have been last week's sermon. And the third point in this series, which we covered last week, was apart from God, busyness is useless. Do you remember that? Apart from God, busyness is useless, and we looked at the vanity of achievements as found in the book of Ecclesiastes. There was also a fourth point that we learned last week, though I didn't identify it as a fourth point at the time. Like I, Actually, I didn't realize it until this week, looking back at last week's sermon. But last week's sermon really had a second point, and that is, if our achievements are done for God, then they're not in vain right? Do you remember that? Like, I didn't say that was the second point of the sermon, but it's just the reverse of the first point. Apart from God, busyness is useless. And we said, but if our achievements are done for God, then they're not useless. And we said that because that's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And then we ended last week with a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? We ended last week with some important questions. We said, well, how can I make sure that I'm doing the Lord's work? How can I make sure that the stuff I do is stuff that I'm doing for God, right? And so we said, we'll get to that next week, and here we are, it's next week. So, in an effort to answer those questions, how can I do the Lord's work? How can I make sure I do what I do for God? What we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna learn a few more passages of scripture. And we're gonna start in the book of Haggai, chapter one, verse nine, okay? You did not mishear me, Haggai was the word I said, okay? Haggai is a, it's, if you have a paper Bible and you're trying to find it right now, it will take you about 20 minutes. Um, it, is, it is just, it's two pages in your Old Testament. It's a very small book in the Minor Prophets, one of the smallest books in the Bible. Um, preachers almost never preach out of Haggai. For some of you, this will be the very first sermon you've ever heard from Haggai, but hey, everybody has to have their first time sometime. Here we go. Haggai chapter one, starting in verse nine. This is the verse I want you to get. And it says that, he says, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So we got a verse with the word busy in it, so I guess we picked the right verse. But what does it mean? And so, so far what I've done is I've just quoted a verse sort of out of context. So I would imagine, if you're not familiar with it, this may not mean a whole lot to you. You might go, I don't know what to do with this. Who expected much? Who had a bad harvest? Why did the Lord ruin it? What is the Lord's house that's being referred to? And what, are, what were the people busy doing? And so for us to understand that, we've got to go back and look at the historical context in order to understand the verse. Are you ready for that? All right, here we go. I'm going to give you a quick summary of the Old Testament starting at the very beginning of the Old Testament all the way up to Haggai chapter 1 verse 9. Okay? Doing the whole thing. Um, I'm going to try to do it quickly. So the Bible begins first page. God creates the world. All right. The first two people he makes are Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have some kids who have some kids who have some kids who have some kids who have some kids. And one of those kids is named Abraham. God initiates a relationship with Abraham and has a covenant with Abraham. And among other things, one of the things he says to him is um, that he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. His descendants, Abraham's descendants, are going to become a great nation. And there's a particular land that they are going to settle in, and that land is going to be given to them. So God promises this land to Abraham's descendants, who will be a great nation. That is where the phrase promised land comes from. I didn't even realize this as a kid. It's because it was land that was promised to Abraham's descendant. Therefore, it was the promised land. So God's promises come true. Um, Abraham's descendants do indeed become a big nation and they are what we see them in the book of, uh, the beginning of the book of Exodus, they are in captivity, okay? They are enslaved by the Egyptians. And the book of Exodus is the story of how God rescues them from the Egyptians and out of that country and out of the enslavement that's connected to all that. It's a very famous story. It's been in multiple movies, okay? Moses says, let my people go and the people get out and they go to the promised land and they conquer it, and they settle it. The first king of the promised land is named Saul, okay? The first king of like the kingdom of of, um, Israel is Saul. The second king is David, and the third king is Solomon. During Solomon's reign, Solomon builds a temple, and this is very significant, especially if we're getting ready to understand the book of Haggai. Solomon builds a temple, and the temple is needed in order to obey God, because there are all these commands that God gave them that revolve around the temple. There are priests that have to go to the temple, there are altars that are supposed to be in the temple, there are animals that are supposed to be sacrificed at certain times, there are holidays that they have and rituals that they are to obey, where the high priest will go back behind the curtain and drip blood and do certain things in the most holy place in the temple. There are these commands that if they're going to do what God's called them to do, they're going to need a temple. And in fact, before they had that temple, they were even obeying the commands with another building called the. Anybody want to guess what it was, or say what it was, if you remember it? Yeah, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically the temple, but it was a tent kind of temple. And so, in order for the people of God to obey him and do what he had commanded them to do in the book of Exodus, they did it with this tent tabernacle. Solomon permanizes the tabernacle by, um, I don't know if permanizes a word. You're allowed to make up stuff, I think. <laughs> Shakespeare did it. Everyone says he's a genius. Okay? So, um, so he permanizes the tabernacle and creates this temple. And the temple is important for the people to be able to obey God. Um, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom divides. Um, I, I don't ever hear anyone call it a civil war, but it kind of is in the sense that the country splits. And all that was known as Israel becomes two sort of separate countries, one that retains the name Israel and one that's called Judah. Okay? Judah and Israel are there side by side, and they have two sets of kings. The king of Israel is different than the king of Judah for quite a while. Um, eventually, other kingdoms come in and conquer both Israel and Judah. So all that used to be known as Israel all gets conquered by the bad guys. In some cases, it's the Assyrians and in some cases, it's the Babylonians. One of them took over one of the countries, one of them took over the other one and then in one case, it was the Persians. I believe the Persians came in after that and conquered the Assyrians and Babylonians. And so what happens at this point is the kingdoms are nearly destroyed. There some really bad things go down. I think the people were very cruel and a lot of slaughter. I think um, the Lots of things that were in Israel were destroyed, and city walls were knocked down. As best as I understand it, the temple that Solomon built was destroyed, and a lot of the people were killed, but not all of them. Some of them were kidnapped and taken into captivity into the countries that had conquered them, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians, depending on what time period in history we're talking about. So what you have is these Israelites who are no longer in their homeland, and they're living in these other lands that have conquered them. Um, And so this is known by, I mean, almost any time you read a book where it talks about this, it's Israel in exile, okay? When Israel is in exile, it means there are Jewish people that are still alive. They're on the planet. They're just not in their homeland anymore. They're in these lands where they were taken into captivity. So they're there in exile, and they want to go back to their homeland, But years go by. I think from the book of Jeremiah, I'm trying to remember, I think it's at least 70 years go by, and then finally God allows them to be able to go back to their homeland. But when I say go back to their homeland, enough time has passed that it seems to be most, if not all of these people, are going back to a land that they never lived in. Because if it's been all these years, they were probably born in exile, and they're now going back to land that had belonged to their father, and their grandfather, and their grandmother, and whatever. So they go back home because King Cyrus of the Persians allowed them to do that. And they go back home and they're trying to reset up their land. In the meantime, as best as I can tell, other people moved in. I guess like when when people get exterminated and there's a bunch of land, some other people come in and go, hey, free land. And so some people just start living there. They then move in among these people who have been, I'm sure those people would have said that they've been living there longer than the Israelites. Of course, the Israelites would have said, no, actually, we've been living here longer than you. Like we were here before you ever came here. So they show up and they start to rebuild. They need to rebuild houses and city walls and rebuild their country again now that they're able to go back, right? And if you are a Jewish person who is very thankful that God rescued you from exile and allowed you to go back home, and if you're a Jewish person who wants to honor this God in the way that this God has commanded he be honored, what is one of the very first things you're going to rebuild when you get back? The temple. So that's what they did. They start to rebuild the temple so that they can follow what God has given to them. And so they're rebuilding this temple. Well, the people who live in the land before them, okay, the people that settled in the land while they were gone, they don't like the temple. Those people are there going, what is this? Why are you building that thing? Well, this is a temple to Yahweh, our God. Oh, well, we don't believe in that God. We don't want you to do that. And so the people that are in the land start to oppose the Israelites rebuilding their temple. And they do all of these things to sort of stress them out and and frustrate them and stop them and red tape government regulations and they're writing letters to kings to try to stop them and make it illegal. And then eventually they're successful and they stop the Israelites from rebuilding the temple. Then time goes by. It's more than a decade. I can't remember how much it was. 15, 17 years-ish go by. And there comes a point where it's time to get back to rebuilding the temple. And the person that God raises up to say to the Israelites, it's time to rebuild this temple, is Haggai. So now we've gotten from the creation all the way up to Haggai. Haggai is the prophet from God telling the people it is time to resume the rebuilding of the temple. And based on the tone of Haggai, um, it looks to me like the people were either resistant to his message at first Or at the very least, they had been resistant in the recent past before he spoke. They were not interested in rebuilding the temple. So with all of that understood, let's go back to Haggai. It'll probably make way more sense this time around. So let's go to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 this time. In the second year of King Darius, and that would be King Darius of Persia. This would be the Persian king who had authorized the Israelites to rebuild their temple. On the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now look at the, the prophecy that God gives. The Lord of hosts says this. These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So notice the prophecy that God gives puts in the mouth of Haggai and says, tell the people this. God is actually quoting the people, Okay. God's prophecy to the people is, here it is, you all are saying the time has not come from the house of the Lord to be rebuilt, right? God is quoting what the people in the land are saying, okay? And as I keep reading, I think you're gonna be able to tell that what God is saying is, I don't like that you're saying that. I don't like that you are saying the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So he responds to what they've been saying in verse three. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So see, that's a question in response to what they said. The people said, um, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And he's going, "Mm, well, what time is it? Is it time for you to be building your houses? Is it time for you to be living in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? So there was some sort of resistance. I don't know exactly what it was with why they were saying the time has not come for the, for the, the house to be rebuilt. Um, it could be that it was the just kind of laziness. Hey, we've had no temple for like 15 years now and it seems like we're fine. Maybe we don't really need it after all. It could be the opposition. Goodness gracious, every time we try to build these things, our neighbors get mad at us. Maybe let's just stop angering the neighbors. Um, It could be that they are just saying like, it's gonna take a lot of time and a lot of money in order to build this temple. And we're barely getting by as it is. But for whatever reason, they're saying, now's not the time. And God's going, really, it's not the time? Is it time for you to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Verse five, now the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. And he's about to say this, he's about to say to them, hey, I want you to just think back how it's been going the past few months. Israelites, I just want you to just think about how it's been for you the past few years. And this is what he says, verse six. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. God's pointing out something. Things haven't been going well for you, have they? And and you're gonna see God's basically saying, there's a reason for that. Verse seven, the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house then I will be pleased with it and be glorified says the lord and now here comes the verse that I read to you at the beginning of the sermon that maybe didn't make sense to you then but should make sense to you now verse 9 you expected much but then it amounted to little when you brought the harvest to your house i ruined it why this is the declaration of the lord of hosts because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house it makes a lot more sense this time around right Yeah, you would get that. The people were busy with their own houses and not obeying the Lord and they were not building his house. And it seems to me God is saying here, hey, first things first. They might have been thinking, well, when the harvests get better, then we'll do it, right? Uh, When the economy improves, then we'll do the Lord's work. And it seems that God is saying here, oh, the economy is bad because you're not doing my work. The harvests aren't going to get better until you build my house. Now, to be perfectly honest, I picked this passage because it has the word busy in it, okay? Just looked around. What are the Bible verses that say busy? Found this one and went, "Ah, that's good. That'll work. We'll do that one. Um, The word here, and it does, it really does match. The word here is actually not even the word busy. It's the Hebrew word for run, okay? But I think the reason why many Bible translations translate it as busy rather than the word run is because it's not literally talking about running. He's not saying my house lies in ruins while you all are running around the track, right? He's not saying you guys are so obsessed with track and field that you aren't getting to my house. No, he's saying I'm concerned because I want you to build my house and you all are running around doing your own thing. You're busy with your own stuff. So I thought this passage has a fantastic principle in it, especially for a series called Mind Your Own Busyness. Because the principle that's being given here is don't be busy with your stuff above God's stuff. First things first. He's saying to the people here, you are treating your house like it's more important than my house. That shouldn't be. Get your priorities in order. So now in principle... That is very helpful for us because we're in the same position as Israelites, at least somewhat. Like we also are supposed to put God first, right? We're like them in that sense. We also should be putting God first above our stuff. But practically speaking, doing that is going to look different for us because we aren't in their exact situation, right? We aren't being commanded to build a temple now. In fact, the temple was done away with at the death of Jesus Christ, So how can we apply this to our lives? Like, how can we put God first? How can we make sure that we're doing the Lord's work in the absence of a temple building project that doesn't apply to us? Well, for that, we're gonna need to go to the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew. It's actually not very far from Haggai, just, I don't know, a little few pages over. We're going to Matthew chapter six. I'm gonna start reading in verse 19. We were just reading the words of Haggai. Now we're going to read the words of Jesus Christ himself. This is from the most famous sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount. This is from right in the middle of that sermon. I'm gonna read to you some things from Matthew chapter six. And as I read them, I'm hoping you are going to notice that some of the things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter six fit with the things we've already said in this series. So Matthew six, starting in verse 19. Jesus said, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal." What's he saying here? Well, he's saying there's some type of treasure you can live for. You can live for the treasure of this earth, or you can live for the treasure of heaven, but somehow you're gonna live your life living for something. And so this is about the way that people relate to their possessions, and what possessions they value the most. When I look at these two verses, they remind me of other things we've learned in the series. Verse 19 reminds me a little bit of Ecclesiastes, and verse 20 reminds me a little bit of 1 Corinthians 15, the two verses we learned last week. If you haven't noticed it, I will try to point it out. What is Jesus, why does verse 19 remind me of Ecclesiastes? Jesus says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, right? right? What? They're kind of useless, right? Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? What's the reason that Jesus gives? Because they're temporary. Well, because moth and rust destroy them and thieves break in and steal. They don't, it doesn't last forever. Does that remind you of anything? Remember how Solomon last week, I mean, he didn't say it last week, he said it a long time ago, but remember last week when we learned that Solomon was like under the sun, all of these things are temporary, what, what a waste, right? Why, why do you need to get all this stuff when, you're gonna, when it's all temporary anyway? And So Jesus is saying, it seems to me kind of the same thing, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, why? That stuff doesn't last And then in verse 20, he says what? He says, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? What reason does he give? Because it's permanent. Because moth and rust don't destroy. Thieves don't break in and steal. And that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15. Remember last week when we said some of the work that we do, if the work that we do is for the Lord, it's not in vain because it is permanent, because you are permanent. Remember that? In 1 Corinthians 15, we said there was that point where it talked about because there is a salvation that is eternal and we will be eternal. Remember, there's that verse that it says when this mortal takes on immortality, like there's gonna come a day when you become permanent. And on that day, the work that you did for the Lord will be recognized for the permanent thing it, it is. And that's what he's saying here. Collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, the stuff that lasts forever. Another thing you see in these two verses is something that's similar to what you see in Haggai, because two things are being contrasted in this verse, right? In Haggai, it was your house versus God's house, right? Why are you living in your paneled houses while my house is in ruin? Haggai contrasted your house with God's house. Jesus in this verse is contrasting stuff of earth with stuff of heaven. He's saying, what are you gonna live for? Which one? He pretty much says that. If you just look, um, I'm just going to stay in the same chapter. This is three verses later, same topic. Jesus says, no one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. You're either going to serve the stuff of this world, the stuff that Solomon called the stuff under the sun, right? You're going to either serve the stuff of this world or God. But it can't be both. And then after he says that, he says this very famous verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, but it's usually not taught right after the verse that comes just before it. But this is what he says. The next verse is, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? You've heard this verse before? But notice when he says, don't worry about your life. Before that, he said, this is why I tell you. What is why I tell you? The thing I just said. What was the thing he had just said? You're going to live for the stuff of this earth, or you're going to live for God, but it's not going to be both. Therefore, don't worry about the stuff of this world. That's not your deal. And then he gives a list of all the stuff, what you will eat, what you will drink, your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food? Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? And another thing this verse reminds me of, particularly because of the word worry It reminds me a little bit of the passage we looked at on the first week of the series, the one with Mary and Martha. Does it remind you of that? I mean, in this verse, he says, don't worry about your life. What did he say to Martha? He said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is necessary. He said to Martha, you're worried about all these things when only one thing is really the thing you gotta be concerned about. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? It seems to me he's saying the same thing. You all get worried about all these things, but there's really just one thing that you really need to be concerned about. And he gets to that at the end of the paragraph. Let me skip there. I'll go to verse 31. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but, here it is this, is, this is the one thing. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. God knows you need that stuff, right? He'll take care of you. You just need to be concerned about the one thing. I mean, that's what he said to Martha. Only one thing is needed. Not all these things you're worried about. And here he is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount going, there's all these things you could worry about But there's one thing to seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. I would say also there are some similarities here with this verse and Haggai. Because in the book of Haggai, what did he say? Haggai essentially said, in the midst of his historical context, he said, Put first the Lord's house, right? What is Jesus saying? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like, it's the same command. It's just the specifics of temple building are left out of this one because it doesn't apply. But he's saying, put everything that God cares about, everything that God values, everything that God says is right and good and pure above your concerns, above your anxieties, above your seekings, may say, back to that, okay. How do I do that? So that's what I'm supposed to do. Make sure that God's stuff is above my stuff. How do you even do that? What do we do? Do we all have to become pastors? Is that how we do that? Do we all need to be, like, go into ministry full time in order to do the work of the Lord? Is that how we seek first his kingdom? And I would say to that, no. God has different things for different people to do. You can do ordinary work that God has called you to and do it for him. I don't want to overwhelm you with too many Bible verses this morning, but I have one more that I'm going to need to quote in order to make this point. So we're going to end with Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. It says this, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically. That word enthusiastically could also be translated from the soul. That would be more literal translation. Okay? Whatever you do, do it from your soul. As something done for who? The Lord. And not for men. It's not really done for these, these human beings that you might call your boss or whatever, right? It's not really for them. It's not for this stuff under the sun. You do it while you're under the sun, you do it for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the soul, enthusiastically, with all your heart, right, as something that's done for the Lord, not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. That seems to be some kind of treasures in heaven, right? And then he ends it with, you serve the Lord Christ. So, who was this verse written to, okay? Like what sub, like what segment of people was this verse written to? Anybody know? Yep, that's what a lot of people said in the first service and that's not incorrect. It was written to the Colossians. But I'm saying there's a specific subgroup of the Colossians that this was written to, okay? It was written to the slaves. You can tell this because if you just grab your Bible and go up one verse, you can see this is the section of the letter where he's writing to the slaves. He, that's what he says, slaves, obey your human masters and everything, da-da-da-da. That's who he's talking to here. So 2,000 years ago, slavery existed in the Roman Empire, okay? There were slaves in the Roman Empire who became Christians, right? As the gospel went forth, there were people who were slaves who became Christians, and they were told to do things, right? So I want you to see here, slaves in the Roman Empire are told what? These slaves were told to serve the Lord, Right? And, and by the way, in principle, this applies to all Christians. It's not as if they're saying, okay, well, if you're a slave, then you have to serve the Lord. And then if you're a regular Christian, you just do whatever you want. Every single Christian was supposed to serve the Lord, right? He's our master. He's our Lord. So uh, this applies to all Christians. But in this particular case, the slaves were being told to serve the Lord. And I want you to notice, they weren't told to become pastors. They couldn't have. They didn't even have that option, Right? So what were they told to do? They were told to work from the soul as if Jesus was their master. They were told to work enthusiastically as if God is their boss. And the reason they were told to do that is because he is, right? They're supposed to work as if the Lord Jesus is their boss. He says it here, do it as something done for the Lord, right? Like Do it as if Jesus is your boss, but then you get to the bottom and it's like, you serve the Lord Christ. The reason you should work with all your heart doing whatever it is he's put before you, with all your heart, you're supposed to do it as if you're doing it for him because you are. He really is your boss. If you're not the head of the company, right? He's your boss's boss. So here's our application. In response to the gospel. Or maybe another way of saying this is because Jesus has saved us and redeemed us and owns us and loves us, let your to do list be God's list for you. Do whatever it is He says for you to do. Like follow His instructions, all of the ones you're aware of. And then let the ordinary work that you do, okay? Work that you didn't even choose to do, right? I'm assuming a lot of you have work in your life. It's just you didn't. It's not like, oh, this is what I want to do. Like it just pff, came on your plate and it's your responsibility now, all right? Let your ordinary work that you didn't even pick be done for God. Change diapers for God. Make spreadsheets for God. File medical charts for God. Take the kids to soccer practice for God. Honor your marriage vows for God. For God. Abstain from pornography, for God. Buy your mom a birthday present, for God. Study your geography stuff for your geography test, for God. Help your friend fix his flat tire, for God. Volunteer in kid Zone. for God. I believe that that's how you move busyness from being a thing that distracts you from God and you make it into that which is actually your labor in the Lord. Isn't that great? Let's pray. God, I thank you for revealing this to us. And I prayed this in the last, a couple of times during the last service, and so I guess I'll just pray it again now. I thank you for the people who are in this room who needed to be reminded of this. I assume that there are people in this room that go, okay, yes, I have learned that before, but I needed to remember that. And so I thank you for this opportunity of remembrance. And I thank you. I especially thank you for the people in this room who are learning it for the first time right now, because I'm imagining that's got to be the case. There got to be some people in the room right now, who are learning this for the first time. And man, that's exciting. I am happy for them. How cool to be to figure, oh, now I know. Now I know how to worship God with all of the things I do, not just on Sunday morning, but my life. So that is exciting. I pray that you would bless those people and this would be the beginning of a wonderful journey for them. And for those of us who already knew it, I pray that this would be a good reminder for us that we would go, oh, I did need to hear that again. I need to renew my commitment to worshiping the Lord all the time. So I thank you for this. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.